Open with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. Last week's sermon was out of verses 1 and 2. And a new and already former friend mocked me for going so slow. We'll pick it up just a little bit today with something like six verses. Colossians 3, 1 through 8 will be our text this morning, but let's go ahead and read from verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Thankfulness can easily become a formality. I can think of, think of two kinds of thankfulness like this, and they each... Uh, have their place. There's polite thankfulness, the holiday kind, the kind for gifts. Who hasn't written a thank you note with an unthankful heart? I grew up receiving gifts from family around the country, and then I would write thank you notes. I'm not sure I was thankful for all those gifts. I remember at age 10 receiving the gift of a very tacky sweater knit by one relative. And I was just old enough to have a strong opinion about the sweater. And I wrote a thank you note to that nameless relative. So we know of that kind. Sometimes the gift didn't satisfy a need or a want, but we say thanks, thankfulness as routine. So that's polite holiday thankfulness. And there's There's friendly, everyday thankfulness. It's good gestures of thankfulness for small things. Thanks for the Coke. I sure appreciate it. You say it and forget it. You mean it in the moment, but it's an everyday kind of thing. It's thankfulness as rote. Uh, Someone offers one thing and you say, thanks. Maybe even without thinking of it, but it's a good thing to say. More meaningful than the first polite holiday kind of thankfulness, but not terribly meaningful. Nevertheless, well, this letter to the Colossian church begins with a customary, polite word of thanks. It was customary in letters like this to address your audience with your name and then who your readers were and then to say some word of thanks. But Paul's deep feelings of actual thankfulness hijack this custom in letter writing for deep and beautiful and needed words of thanks. It is not a rote thing for Paul or a routine thing. This is a deep spiritual reflex of thankfulness that we see 
on the page. He says he is always giving thanks. And how can he be always giving thanks? From where does one get a supply of anything for which to give thanks all the time? He says he thanks God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus in all his fullness fills us up so that we overflow with thankfulness to God. And we could call this Godward all the time thankfulness. Godward all the time thankfulness. And it's a miraculous kind of thankfulness. God has given us big and satisfying gifts. He did it in the garden, and yet thanklessness toward God is the hallmark of humanity. In fact, thanklessness is the very heart of humanity's problem. I don't think we usually think of the human problem as a problem of thanklessness, but consider Romans chapter 1. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But instead of giving thanks, they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. Thanklessness toward God emerges from the heart that sees man as greater than God. And the slide we rode as humanity from life to death in the garden had a name, and it was called thanklessness. But Paul here thanks God. So we should listen in. And what's it based on? Well, probably not his circumstances. Those were actually pretty subpar. Paul is not living the dream. He's living in chains, and he may very well be living under a death sentence. His circumstances are bad. And you may not be living the dream either, and you may not be living under a death sentence, but you live in a world marked by, and you have a life marked by the indicators of death all around you. You may feel its traces in a broken relationship or trouble in life. There are Christians this morning displaced due to the flooding in Houston. What difficulty we must pray for our brothers and sisters in that city. And that may be a parable of your life right now, flooded with trouble. But even if your life is filled with the best that this world has to offer, it is still not living the dream. It is still far short of all that God would have for us in Jesus. Paul here has something that allows him to overflow with thankfulness in the hardest of human circumstances. So here's the question for the morning. Why is the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, thankful? Why is Paul thankful? What is it that God is doing through Jesus Christ that overrides, that eclipses, His circumstances. And we're after more than his intent here. When we read the Bible, we're not merely after curiosities. Like, why did he write that? And what was he thinking? And why is Paul thankful to God? We're after imitation here. But consider that Paul is expressing his thankfulness in detailed ways in order to spread that thankfulness in the lives and hearts of his readers. In next week's text, Paul will move from thanking God to praying for them to thank God with him. He prays in verse 12, that you may be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance 
and patience with joy, giving thanks to God the Father. So next week, he'll pray for them to thank God the Father. And in fact, you can think of in this letter, the entirety of chapter 1 all the way through verse 5 is like one really long greeting. He had to talk about Christ and salvation and God's work and all along it is strung through with thankfulness. So that in verse 6, the section begins, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So in 2 chapter 6, when he makes a pivot to the agenda of his letter, he's going to make a word about their life being lived, abounding in thanksgiving. So it's a dominant theme. He's going to tell them to be thankful. Before that, he'll pray for their thankfulness. And in this passage, he's thankful in front of them. He's thankful in his heart to God for them, before them. And so we ask, why is Paul thankful to God this morning? We want to meditate on the answer to that question. And we see that by the Holy Spirit's design, this kind of fullness in the heart that overflows in thankfulness starts by meditating on the apostle and what's in his heart. And if we want to increase in our own thankfulness, we need to dig down into Paul's. If we want to be encouraged this morning, my prayer is that we would be encouraged in our own thankfulness to God this morning. We begin by excavating Paul's thankfulness. So, if you're a grump this morning, or if you're, you've been grump for a while, and you're in a grumpy season. Or if you're not grumpy, but you're cynical or discouraged and grumpy because of all the grumpiness around you or the grumpiness of someone around you. Bracket all of that for the morning. That's a short-term solution, at least. Cynicism seems to fall earlier in life and later in life. And earlier in life, it's maybe cloaked in passion Uh, And later in life, it's just crankiness. And we all deal with it in various ways. Passion is needed. And sometimes we need to be cranky. But grumpiness is not the quality of a Christian. So, if you're grumpy this morning, bracket it. If someone else is grumpy in your life and it's got you down, turn off the voice in your head for the next hour and listen to the voice of God through his word. Thankfulness, like thanklessness, is viral. It goes viral. And that's why Paul starts with his thankfulness to encourage these readers and theirs. So let's let Paul's thankfulness rub off on us this morning. Let's excavate the fullness in his heart overflowing in thankfulness so we can examine our own hearts as we do so. Why is Paul thankful to God? Well, there are many layers to this excavation site of thankfulness in this passage. But it cuts nicely two ways. What Paul heard about them and what they heard about God. Two clean cuts to reveal all the layers that are there. Why is Paul thankful to God? Our question for the morning. First, Because of something he heard about them. Verses 4 through 5. What did Paul hear about them? He says, 
We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. From the prison floor, what eclipses Paul's difficult circumstances? It is hearing the news of the faith and the love and the hope of these Christians, believers whom he has never even met. He knows some of their names, no doubt. He hasn't spent time with but a few of them who've made their way to him. Epaphras, a friend and Colossian citizen, told Paul about the faith and the love and the hope of this church. And these are the kinds of things that get around. And Paul has been thanking God ever since he heard of that, he says. He's been thanking God for their faith, for their faith. This is their posture toward God. Faith is a word that could use some definition. Paul is not thanking God for faith in general. Every human being has faith. Kids have faith in their parents. They believe the word of their parents generally and trust in their goodness generally. A basic authority on which to build their lives. And every person, whatever the age, has a basic authority on which they build their lives. It may be a particular author or a particular periodical or channel of news. It may be a particular celebrity. It may be a particular academic celebrity. Maybe a particular institution. It may be a particular Christian leader or preacher. Well, if you're new to the Bible and to Christianity, you have faith in someone too. And if you're not new to the Bible and Christianity, that doesn't mean that our faith isn't in the right place. The faith that Paul thanks God for here is faith of a specific kind. It's faith in a very specific object. It's not faith in religion in the buildings and the events and the rhythms, even if they are important and good, the rhythms of a religious community, even like ours. It's not faith in our religious action, something that we say or do for Jesus even, be it a prayer or walking an aisle or going to church. And it's not faith in our religious faith, a sincerity that we trust in, that we really believe whatever it is that we believe and that it's that sincerity and depth of really believing that is our trust. Sometimes we are tempted to trust, to have faith in our own faith. The object of the faith here that Paul is talking about is very specific. It's very important. It's faith in Jesus Christ. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. And so I pray for you this morning that your faith is not in religious ritual. It's not in this religious experience this morning. That it's not even in your faith, but that it's in Christ himself. That's their posture toward God. He thanks God for their faith in Christ Jesus. And he continues, verse 4, and of the love that you have for all of the saints. That's their posture toward one another. Our posture toward God and our posture toward one another have always been linked. 
They were linked when Adam sinned in the garden and then blamed his wife. They were linked in God's covenant with Moses summed up as love for God and love for neighbor. And they were linked in God's words to the prophets against spiritual idolatry and corresponding injustices against the widows and the poor. And they're linked for us if we're in Christ. For the world will know that we're his disciples by our love for one another. This love has three features. Watch me here. It's love for all the saints. It's a love for Christians specifically that he's reflecting on. We love the men and the women in our lives that do not know Christ, but there is a special affection that we have for one another as the family of God. In the same way that there is a special affection that you have that's distinctive for Maybe your biological family. There is a special and distinctive love that Christians have for one another as God's people. What did this look like, Paul? Love is a little vague. Can you get specific for us? Yes, I can, Paul says. Turn with me to chapter 3 and look at verse 12. Chapter 3, verse 12. Chapter 3 is given largely to an unpacking of how the Christian life and change in our lives and Christian ethics works in the Christian life. And here he gives some commands. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness and humility and meekness and patience, bearing with one another And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. In chapter 3, he fans the flame of their love for one another. He calls them beloved and appeals to them for this kind of way. With one another. But maybe these are the very kinds of things he's actually already heard about in some measure. He's saying he's heard of their faith and their love. And if what he describes sounds hard, let's ponder a moment what kinds of saints he's talking about. Back to chapter one. He says their love for the saints, not quite. He says their love for all of the saints. He thanks God for all of the saints. This love is particular in that it's for saints, but it's universal in the sense sense that it's for all the saints. The kinds that are your age and the kinds that are not your age. The kinds that dress like you and the kinds that don't dress like you. And the kinds that listen to your music and that don't listen to your music. That speak with your accent and don't speak with your accent. That share your ethnicity and don't share your ethnicity that share your interests and that don't share your interests, that share your socioeconomic bracket and those that don't share your socioeconomic bracket. Am I reading too much here into the word all? Uh, Maybe that's not the point of emphasis. Maybe he means to be inclusive, but he isn't quite making it this sharp of a point. No, I think that's exactly the kind of love he's talking about. Look at the end of the chapter in verse 25. Paul speaks of his calling to ministry, an appointment from Jesus personally on the road to Damascus, 
where Jesus put him to a particular task. He says it was called, he was called to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations now revealed to the saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. And this church in Colossae was made up of Jews and Gentiles. God's plan entailed the coming together of two diametrically, culturally opposed peoples. We'll talk a little bit about this in a few weeks. But you don't get more different than Jews and Gentiles in this context. And Paul is thrilled to hear of their love for one another across all of their fantastic differences. He is overflowing with thankfulness. These groups are now the church, the one body, and they're loving each other. And Paul thanks God for this because Jesus saved him in order to put him in the service of this very mission, to see the Gentiles come to faith and see there to be one new humanity in Christ. And those early Christians were not to have a low threshold for fellowship with one another over cultural matters. Um, It's not wrong for Christians to gather for corporate worship in culturally distinctive distinctive ways. Every worship gathering in our own city or the world shouldn't be a melding of every imaginable preference, if you will, either around the world or in our city. We live in an unusual time and place where many cultures may be present in one city at once, but this principle can be abused in service of very fine and elevated preferences. Cultural differences with people in one body are not a trigger for finding another church family. There may be a variety of legitimate reasons to go to another church. No, the cultural differences are often and usually a trigger for the hard work of loving your church family and demonstrating the beauty of what the gospel can achieve in the life of a group of people who have differences. In fact, we could even say that it's good to find a church with people not like you apart from Christ. And some of you are here in a bit of a stretch. You might say, uh, this place is way too traditional, but I love the people and their Christ. And you might say, this place is way too edgy, but I love the people and their Christ. And I've heard all that, actually. And I love it. I love it. And it's hard, you say. It's hard. Because everyone isn't exactly like me. Well, yes, I say that too. You are hard too for me. We are all hard for each other. This is why Paul is so thrilled that their love has made it all the way to him. But the church has always been spiritual work. When we show up, we are showing up to work on Sunday morning. It is difficult to show compassion to one another. And it is difficult to be humble as he commands us. And it is difficult to be patient with one another. And it's difficult, listen to the language Paul uses, to bear with one another. Are you having to bear with somebody in the room right now? That's normal church life. And that's your, that's the glory that you bring to Jesus in bearing with one another. Us bearing with one another is not a sign that we have problems. It's a sign that we're saved sinners on our way to meet our Lord. Bearing with one another in love as we do. And it is difficult, may I say this, to forgive one another when we have a complaint. 
so easy in our sin to nurse a complaint, to love a complaint, to hold a complaint, to bring up a complaint. Years later, it just feels good. It's weird. That's our sin. But we forgive one another. There are things that happen between us that never find the light of day after they're forgiven. And no one will know that knows the two of us. There are things that happen in church life that once forgiven, they just don't come up again. It's not because we're having to hold our tongue. It's because we've genuinely moved on. This is what we do. We bear with one another and forgive one another. And that takes great humility and patience. Thank God, then, for the Spirit's help. This is love he talks about for the saints, for all the saints, and it's love in the Spirit. A certain kind of love, it's love in the Spirit. Look at verse 8. Epaphras made known to us your love in the Spirit. It's spiritual love. That's the kind of love we're talking about. Love empowered by the very Spirit of God that indwells the Christian when we've entrusted our life and our eternity to Jesus Christ. And our, we've been regenerated and made new. And we have the Spirit. That Spirit generates the fruit of love. And so, heritage, I thank God for your faith and love. You believe in the Lord Jesus. And you are not trusting your faith but you're trusting in Christ. And friends, you love one another. There are differences here, but you're getting along. And oh, there are outliers, some who are not humble, some who don't bear with others well, some who have a complaint and don't forgive. And if you aren't an outlier now, you may well be later this week. I may be at the end of Sunday. Sundays are long days. And that's okay. We are not saints because we're perfect. We are saints because we're sinners saved by the grace of God. Take encouragement, friends. Paul commands this church to love one another and get specific in chapter 3. But in his greeting, and he's not just throwing words at them. He's not just buttering them up. He thanks God for their faith and for their love. So I can thank God for your faith and for your love. And we can thank God for each other's faith and love, even if it's not perfect. We're all growing. So let's keep getting better at loving the saints. If you see anyone this morning you might not naturally hang out with, great, you're looking at a new friend in the Lord. Let's lean in to the less obvious relationships so that if someone were to walk in our door, they would say, look at how they get along. Oh, they clump together and there are affinity collections of people, similar age and whatnot, but they labor at knowing one another across their differences. And that can be hard. It's easy to stand in a circle of people that are a lot like you, uh, but go first, like jumping in the water and it's cold. So walk away from your friends and walk up to someone who isn't a friend yet and make a friend. And if you see someone this morning with whom you share an old bitter dispute or a grudge, you're looking at an occasion to demonstrate the love of Jesus by offering forgiveness. And that one can be hard to go first on. But I implore you to go first. Make the call. Make the greeting. Seek forgiveness. Offer forgiveness.
Let's be the people whose love Paul would thank God for, whose love the Lord would rejoice over. And let's take encouragement that we are always, always growing. And where that seems impossible, let us ask the Spirit for his help. Well, how does, here's a question, how does the Spirit strengthen us for this kind of faith and love? How does the Spirit strengthen us for this kind of difficult love that we've described? Well, here's a word, hope. And this is nothing less than the appearing of Jesus Christ. He has heard of the hope that grounds, that is the source of their faith and their love. Chapter 3, verse 4, he'll say, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. That hope, that appearing of Jesus to come, that ultimate horizon, way out there, or maybe near, but it's a big horizon, with a big appearing of Jesus, that hope eclipses all the little stuff that can entangle our hearts and minds and make love difficult. Hope is the fuel for faith and love. Christ in you, he'll say in verse 27, the hope of glory. A church that does not have love is a church that actually before that does not have hope. And her eyes are off her Lord. Hope produces faith and love. Well, we've excavated a good ways down into Paul's thankfulness all ready. And we found some gems, a trio of virtues that turn up over and over in our New Testament, faith, hope, and love. And they're good finds. But there's a level deeper and there's another cut that we can make. Paul thanks God because of something he heard about them. And second, Paul thanks God because of something they heard about God. Their hope explains their faith and their love, but there is something deeper that explains their hope. Verse 5. Of this, the hope, you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it's bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. And if this were a real excavation, we would have just hit something really good here. And to awkwardly shift the metaphor, and the excavation one was good, I'm going to shift to a tree and its fruit. We've got the same axe out, and we just hit a root, is what we did. Faith, hope, and love are the fruit in a Christian life. And the gospel is the root that explains that fruit and the only source. He calls it the word of truth. He calls it the grace of God in truth. It's what they heard, hence the point, because of something they heard about God. Paul spends most of his thankfulness paragraph here reflecting on this gospel that is the source of the love that he's thrilled about. And notice that the gospel comes before love. It produces love. And it's always that way in true Christianity. Or it's actually not Christianity. Christy and I were downtown on Friday night. And we're walking about the river. And you have trees with exposed roots. It's cool. Have you seen the one? It's like a wall of exposed roots on a tree. 
It's a reminder that there are roots to these things. No wonder they can stand strong and tall like they do. They're invisible. They're easy to forget. And when one comes to trees, I'm happy to forget the roots. I have more important things to think about than unseen anchoring and water collection systems for plants. But when it comes to the unseen gospel, this we must never forget. The Spirit wants us. God wants us to remember the root. So lest we forget where faith and love and hope come from and try to get them from some other place. Let's remember the root, which is the gospel. A few things about the gospel which we can pick up from this burst of thankfulness. The gospel has to be heard. Did you catch that? It came to them. It didn't come from within them. It has to be brought by someone. Epaphras brought it to them and they heard it. And it doesn't come by a mist. It comes by words from people like Epaphras. By words from people like you and like me. It has to be heard. It also has to be understood. He says they learned it from Epaphras. He says there was a day when they heard it and understood it. And this gospel having been understood has to then be believed. Remember he thanks God for their faith which is in Christ Jesus. And friends you may not remember the day when you heard it and believed. And if you look back to a day but you did not understand then that probably wasn't the day. But either way don't be obsessed with the day. Occupy yourself today with the gospel with hearing it, with understanding it, and with believing it. But rest assured, if you're in Christ, there was a moment and a time and a day at which you passed over from death to life, from the kingdom of his kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. And everyone in this room is on one or the other side of that day right now. Hear the gospel understand it and believe. Well, what happens when this gospel is heard and understood and believed? What happens when people hear the word of truth, the grace of God and Jesus Christ who came for us, who lived in our place a perfect life, thankful to his father in all things, unlike Adam and the rest of us, who died For us, in our place, on the cross, and who was raised from the dead to new life for us. What happens when a people hears that and believes? It grows. This gospel, this good news of salvation in Jesus Christ, it grows. It grows in the people who believe it, and it grows throughout the whole world as it spreads. You've got both of these going on here. You've got a quality of growth. Depth in the hearers at Colossae. And you've got a quantity of growth. Paul sees it spreading throughout the whole world. There's an inward and an outward dynamic. And a deeper and a wider dynamic to this growth. Hear him again, verse 5. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Which has come to you as it spread. As indeed in the whole world that is bearing fruit. And increasing as it also does among you. Paul has a huge, huge vision of God's work. That explains his thankfulness. It's a huge vision filled with color and life 
It eclipses everything he's feeling, however cold he is or however hungry he is at the moment. And he preaches a gospel that saves people and a gospel that is going out to the whole world. Jesus told him he would as a minister to the Gentiles and it's happening and he's thrilled. And here, much to his great pleasure, he learns that the church at Colossae is believing and loving one another and he's thankful. And he can't speak merely about his thankfulness for them. No, he speaks about his thankfulness for what God is doing in them, for the gospel that is growing and increasing in them. His perspective is not limited. And brothers and sisters, our perspective in life cannot be limited by what we can see or the places we may even go in a day. God's work is much bigger than that. It's global and it's eternal. And why do I say it's eternal? Well, look at his word choice. Fruitful and increase. Those are echoes from the Bible's long story leading to this point. When God made humankind, he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And when God shut down and then rebooted the world with Adam and his family on an ark, they got off and he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And he called Abraham and promised to make him fruitful and multiply him. And sure enough, Israel, a nation, Abraham's children, were fruitful and increased greatly. These are all scriptural quotes. And through the prophets, he promised a day when he would gather his people. He would gather his people for a new covenant community. And they would be fruitful and multiply. Habakkuk 2.14 promises a day when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And Jesus sends out his disciples into all the earth with the gospel. And Paul knows exactly what's going on when he hears news of the faith and the love that are in Colossae. This is one flash and a whole bunch of light that God is spreading throughout the whole world in his work to save. And in this little church, God is saving for his eternal glory. Paul preached the gospel. Epaphras believed. Epaphras preached the gospel in this church at Colossae. Believed, the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing among them. And it has continued that exact course from the first century until today and spreading throughout the whole world that has reached us here this morning. It is bearing fruit and increasing. So Heritage Bible Church, the word of truth has come to you as indeed in the whole world that is bearing fruit and increasing. So it bears fruit and increases among us. And our little stop at the intersection of these busy roads is just one gospel stop on the gospel's growth throughout the entire world. And it came to this place when some saints, including some of you, were meeting across town and decided they needed a building because the gospel was growing among them. And even this morning, the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing in places and through preachers familiar to this church. And if you're new to heritage, you're about to get a tour of a few of the places, not all of them, that preachers are preaching and churches are meeting that we're connected with. The gospel is growing in Malden, where the saints at Emmanuel Bible Church will hear Christ proclaimed from the book of Joel this morning from Brad Baum. The gospel is growing in Brighton, Colorado, where the saints at Redeemer Bible Church will hear Christ proclaimed from the book of Colossians. 
preached by Matt LaCava. And the gospel is growing in New York City, where at First Baptist Church, New York City, Christ is proclaimed from First Timothy in a sermon by Matthew Hoskinson. It's growing and increasing. And the gospel is growing in Menifee, California. The saints have been hearing Christ there proclaimed from the book of Acts by Tim Lovegrove. And the gospel is growing in Columbus, Ohio, where the saints at Calvary Bible Church will hear the gospel proclaimed from the book of Joshua by Eric Seip. And it's growing in Alexandria in the D.C. area, where the saints at Grace Church will hear Christ proclaimed in Romans, where they pick up where they left off from last week by Jonathan Matias. And the gospel is growing in Salt Lake City, Utah, where the saints at Gospel Grace Church will hear Christ proclaimed from John 4, 43 through 53, 4, in a sermon from Danny Brooks this morning, who is filling in there, hard at work, increasing and multiplying the gospel. And that's just in the States. Jonathan Farmer is out there. Mark Hansen is out there. And there are others. These are just a few that come across my desk in the last few weeks. Others are out there. The gospel is growing. And it's growing in you. There's an overflow room. You thought about that? That means there is not enough room for the people who pull into this property every Sunday to worship the Lord and sing with the saints and hear the word preached. Praise God for that. We've been retooling and rethinking the overflow. Uh, What a shame for a visitor to come and not be able to be in this main gathering. Good job at scooting in. Keep that up. Maybe just plan to sit in the middle of of a row. You may make the difference in doing that between a visitor coming back or not. Who knows? And in the overflow, it's not a more intimate video venue for those who like a smaller place. It's an accommodation to a limitation of space on our property. We may need to rotate. Elder communities there to accommodate guests. Unless we want the growth to stop, we'll need to think maybe toward two services. One day, a church plant. That's in our DNA. That's a good thing. Not announcing certainties here, just strategies. Not plans, but possibilities. If the gospel is growing, it's a stewardship for all of us. And this church has a history of leaning in to hard and uncomfortable and difficult moves to accommodate and leverage and fling gospel growth and feed gospel growth. Let's keep it up. Here's another indication of gospel growth of the depth kind. Shepherding groups in the spring, 540 adults signed up for 37 shepherding. It's a whole lot of shepherding groups. I came here from a church about this size. That is a ton of shepherding groups. I'm thrilled about it. Praise God for your investment there. And they multiply too. If your shepherding group is healthy, you'll love one another. If it's really healthy, you'll be raising up a leader and multiplying the love that you know to spread it around because that's what the gospel does when it grows. May God continue to grow his gospel through us and not around us because he is growing his gospel. Now we plant and we water, but God brings the growth. So we presume nothing. There are plenty of fine churches where God can, is, and will get his work done in our city. And if we don't need overflow in a few months, I'm not sweating that. In fact, it's possible with less transfer growth, if that were to happen, we could actually be smaller and the gospel would be getting bigger through our church and our community. Have spiritual eyes to see these things. 
Numbers aren't a measure of success, and they won't be here. We can thank God for a full house, though. But it is worth considering how we might inhibit gospel growth. So, this will be a little cute. On the gospel growth path, there are several sheep traps. You ready for some sheep traps? Sheep traps for us to avoid. We can fall into the trap of only looking backward. This is where a church looks back to days gone by as glory days. And God has done a great work here. And he may have done a great work in your particular life and among your particular circle of brothers and sisters in a previous year, a previous decade, and praise God for all of that. But if we only look back, gospel growth becomes irrelevant because what we're after is that experience, a return to it. If we fall into the trap of only looking around at one another, that's a trap as well. This is where we look around at all that God has done and we say, I like it just like this. And we want to freeze-ray the church and freeze-ray our shepherding group or freeze-ray our circle of friends or freeze-ray our program. And here the gospel's growth becomes a threat to us. What we don't realize is that as soon as we're content with what we see when we look around, often it is the case that what we see begins to take on rot. A church can afford a few people content with what they have. We cannot afford and be a healthy church a whole lot of people content with what we have. So if you are happy with things exactly as they are, it may be um, that if you were to multiply that spirit, you'd actually lose it all. And that's kind of like fruit. And we can fall into the trap also of only looking forward. This is where we, we look forward without, with failing to look back and recognizing where we've come, come from. And here the gospel's growth becomes only a means to growth, which is the goal, and not gospel growth. So here's the problem with all those sheep traps, these sheepy tendencies that we have. To only look back, to only look around, or only look forward. The problem is not looking back, or looking around, or looking forward. But it is not looking back far enough. It is not looking around with spiritual eyes, and it is not looking far forward enough. And so when we look back in our church's life, we shouldn't think about how it was 10 years ago or 20 or 40. We should think in this church 50 years ago when we weren't a church at all, even 2,000 years back, and then remember that the gospel was alive and well and bearing fruit and growing, and that's what we're a part of on the map of God's gospel growth work around the world. We're one tree in an orchard that is his gospel growth in the earth. And when we look around in our church's life, we shouldn't see merely programs or the people we like, but the deep spiritual work that God is doing. And when we perceive that spiritual work, we will want more of it if we're seeing it right. It's exactly what the perception of God's spiritual work in a soul does, is it makes you want more. It makes you want more. And it makes you willing to multiply for it. And when we look forward with the right horizon, we'll actually be looking together all the time at the glorious horizon of the appearing of Jesus Christ in his coming, which eclipses all of the smaller things that may occupy our little grumpy hearts. And I know all about grumpiness. Not after anyone here. This is where our eyes are. We look back all the way to the cross and God's great work there for us and all that it produces so that as we look around we see God at work 
invisibly, miraculously in the people among us through his gospel, which bears the fruit of love and faith. And as we look forward to the glorious appearing of Jesus to come, this is a perspective that makes sense out of Paul's thankfulness from a prison floor. This gospel growth perspective. And it's a perspective that is ripe for gospel growth. It's what Paul saw when he looked around. And it's what he wanted to impart to us this morning. So thank God for gospel growth. And do it out loud with one another. And let's let it go viral. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks We give you thanks for the faith and for the love and for the hope that is evident among us here and that is growing and increasing and bearing fruit throughout the whole world. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for all that you have done for us as sinners in sending your glorious son to live for us, to die for us, And to be raised for us. Not merely to save us. But to utterly transform us. To save us all the way. To make us. We who were thankless people. Utterly filled with thankfulness. All the way down. Because we see things right. And we love the things that you love. And we rejoice in your work among us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.